May 31st, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm here on the shore of the Gulf Coast for Radio Free Oz, talking with Charles Dunder, the latest member of Obama's Gang of Five sent down here to solve the oil spill crisis. Uh, you've just arrived, haven't you, Charles? Yes, I replaced Professor Katz, uh, you know, the astrophysicist, when it was revealed that he was a virulent homophobe and a climate change denier. Oh, I'm sorry mm-hmm. to hear that. So, but, so w- what do you add to the team then? Well, I run the Petro Nutritional Institute back at Solid State University. I'm down here investigating a sustainable solution to the well, the massive loss of fish and shellfish that's going on right here at our feet as we speak. Uh, Petro Nutrition, I'm not familiar with that field. Oh, well, it's relatively new. You know, it didn't take off until we got the whole petrophilic nano-cloning process down. Excuse me? Well, sorry, uh, Mr. Oz. Simply put, given the right starter genes, chain-ganged polymers, and robust steroids, we can create a host of creatures that not only survive in oil-saturated water, but... Well, they really thrive on it. Oh, mm-hmm. Is uh, is that one of them? That thing you're holding in your hand looks looks vaguely like a shrimp. Yes, yes, uh, exactly. We call it the slick shrimp, and and yes, it does thrive in oil polluted wetlands just like these. Uh, now, you throw a million slick shrimp scats. <laughs> the little fellows are called when they come out of the test tube, no bigger than a poppy seed. <laughs> and a month later, well, they're as big as as Buster hair. <laughs> ready to be flavored and sent off to market. You want to try one? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's a little chewy. Oh, that's the that's the polymer filling. How does it taste? Uh, tastes like pork. Yeah, yeah. Pork flavored slick shrimp. One of my one of my favorites. It's uh, it's pan Asian. You know. let, let, let me have it back. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Oh, now you see. Watch this. I I just dip it in the degreaser and watch as it springs back to life. It, it could rub a little of this on it. All right, here you are again. Now give it a try. Mmm. Mm. Now that tastes like jumbo bayou scampi, the real thing. Oh well, they're all the real thing. <laughs> well, <clears throat> and that should go over real good with the green crowd. I mean, you can really eat them. Up to a dozen times, we believe, before the steroid skeleton breaks down, and, well, they just turn to mush. It's a reasonable short-term solution, Charles, but I, I can't wait for the real shrimp to return. Oh, 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 return? Well, Uncle Pete, that hole in the ocean floor is spewing some 200,000 gallons of oil a day. Your great-grandchildren will be waiting for these little shrimp to return. Now, so, now let's get real. I've got this oil-happy catfish here. You only have to put a match to it, like this. Ooh! (laughs) See? He's sautéed and ready to serve. (laughs) This is Peter Bergman for Radio Free Oz in the Gulf, and I want to go home. (laughs) You can never go home. Well, this is the end of the month. May 31st, so we're initiating a new idea, which is the best of the best of the month. And we're going to dedicate this show today to Deborah Benedict Gedwillow, who passed away this weekend, the wife of our webmaster Tom Gedwillow, a dear friend, and uh, we just hope that we can make Oz worthy of her.
Wow, Pete. Well, um, <laughs> since we're here at the bottom of the sea, maybe we could uh, visit the uh, the cave of total hypocrisy. I know you must have something in there today. You know who lives there? Dr. George Wreckers. He's the uh-huh. foremost Christian anti-gay leader. He was just caught with a hooker from rentboy.com, the latest example of hypocrisy on the religious right. That's wait right. Rentboy.com. Rentboy. Wait a minute. Right, yeah. Okay. Now, in... in, in in, now, in 1960, 1996, three res- researchers published a study in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology mm-hmm. about the links between homophobia and homosexual arousal. I've always suggested, look at this, 35 straight men identified as homophobic, records would be one of them, or and 29 straight men that were not were shown heterosexual, lesbian, and gay male porn while their erectile responses were measured. Only the homophobic men showed an increase in penile erection to male homosexual stimuli, reported the researchers. There it is. Oh, really? Well, yeah. And, 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 Slap and, that thing down. Yeah, oh, get, no. I, oh. That's the devil's monkey. My goodness. Uh, see, the there goes another naval officer. It was, it was empirical evidence, said the study, uh, uh-huh. for a theory long uh, popular among psychoanalysts that those most hostile to gay people are often driven by terror and shame about their own desires. So it's not surprising that Dr. Wreckers, a major figure in anti-gay Christian right circles, has been caught traveling with a male prostitute who advertises on rentboy.com. It's becoming the latest in a long line of disgraced culture warriors. Now, the Wreckers brought the, brought the, he bought the escort who advertised his, quote, smooth, sweet, tight ass and perfectly built eight-inch cock on an all-expense-paid trip to Europe. He took him to Europe, right? <laughs> All right. Records later claimed in a Facebook message that he had hired the young man so as to save his immortal soul. Quote, like John the Baptist and Jesus. I know, I, I, I have a <laughs> No, 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 wait like a minute. John the Baptist like John and the Jesus. Baptist. I have a loving Christian ministry to homosexuals and prostitutes in which I share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Meanwhile, on his own website, Wreckers offered a somewhat contradictory explanation, saying that he, quote, requires an assistant to lift his luggage in his travels because of an ongoing condition following surgery. Never mind the fact that when they were photographed at the airport together, it was Wreckers who was carrying the luggage. (laughs) He's carrying a lot more luggage now. Oh, he certainly is. Well, you know, the thing that bothers me most about that, because, you know, okay, Dr. Freud was right and all of that. And and yeah, sure. And that's why they keep falling into with a pit of despair bear of their own making, it's rentboy.com that worries me. Yeah. I mean, where's that guy? Well, I mean, his name is Lucian. That's the, Lucian. The fellow, yeah, Lucian, oh, yeah, yeah. who said that the deal he made, he wrote a contract with Rutgers. He has a copy of the contract. Mm-hmm. And basically, for $75 a day, he was to travel with him in Europe and give him an hour sexual massage and have two meals with him. Two million, they, seventy-five yeah, a day. Well, that's you know, not much, but he got a, he got this big European, and he, and he got a, yeah. he has, got the chance to have his immortal soul saved. You know, hey, that's worth seventy-five dollars a day. Absolutely. So, so here's the problem. Dave. Okay, here's the problem, which is, and I feel for guys like Rutgers, although I I really am sorry for all of the the harm that he does. I mean, look, this is a guy uh, who who goes all over being paid top money to to give you know to support anti-gay measures. Okay. Uh, 
He was one of the two expert witnesses the state of Florida called in uh, in its bid to defend its ban on gay adoption. Gay people, he testified, would have less capability of providing the kind of nurturing and secure emotional involvement for children, as the Miami Herald reported. He was, wait a minute, he was an expert? He was an ex, they called him in as an expert opinion, and that was his expert that opinion? Was, well, it gets worse. Oh, All right. Okay. This is my, my favorite part, in a way, because it's, it's so sad. He also said, let me see, let me just, I just want to, I want to read this properly here. Uh, He also suggested that Native Americans be banned from adopting because they're prone to mental illness and substance abuse. Quote, records. They would tend to hang around each other, he said, so the children would be around a lot of other Native Americans who are doing the same sorts of things. This is an expert speaking. I mean... Be hanging around people who are doing the same (laughs) sorts of things. Which <laughs> I think that's his problem right going in. Yeah, well, yeah but here is the big here's, the thing okay. is that this is a man who believes that his homosexuality, his homosexual urges are wicked. He does actually believe that it is the devil within him. He is mm-hmm. torn up. That's why he spends mm-hmm. so much time shouting about the evil. He can't come out of the closet. He is now. Rent Boy brought him right out there. And, of course, everything that he's connected with, he was one of the original Family Research Councils on the original board of the Family Research Council. They are now not only distancing themselves from him. They're, they're <laughs> going back to find out in their old records whether he was really ever on the board. I mean, oh. they are, they're, they're, the bus is coming, and they're just laying him right on the road. Here comes the old Christian denial. Bus. Down there in the gym, they're washing all those towels twice. Edward Marcotte is looking for drugs that can kill tumors by stopping blood vessels growth. And he and his colleagues at the University of Texas at Austin recently found some good targets. Five human genes that are essential for that growth. Now they're hunting for drugs that can stop those genes from working. Strangely, though, Dr. Marcotte did not discover the new genes in the human genome, nor in lab mice or even fruit flies. He and his colleagues found the genes in yeast. On the face of it, it's just crazy, Dr. Marcotte said. After all, these single-cell fungi don't make blood vessels. They don't even make blood. In yeast, it turns out these five genes work together on a completely unrelated task, fixing cell walls. Dr. Marcotte and his colleagues have found genes associated with deafness in plants and genes associated with breast cancer in nematode worms. The scientists took advantage of a peculiar feature of our evolutionary history. In our distant amoeba-like ancestors, now I'm not sure I had an amoeba-like ancestor, but let's go with it, clusters of genes were already forming to work together on building cell walls and on other very basic tasks essential to life. Come to think of it, when I picture some of my relatives, they are kind of amoeba-like, so maybe I'll take that back. Many of those genes still work together in those same clusters over a billion years later, but on different tasks in different organisms. Studies like this offer a new twist on Charles Darwin's original ideas about evolution. Anatomists in the mid-1800s were fascinated by the underlying similarities of traits in different species. The fact that a bat's wing, for example, has all the same parts as a human hand. Darwin argued that this kind of similarity, also known as homology, was just a matter of genealogy. Bats and humans share a common ancestor, and thus they inherited limbs with five digits. Bats and humans with similar ancestors. Maybe that's why there's such a fascination with vampires. 
Some 150 years of research have amply confirmed Darwin's insight. Paleontologists, for example, have brought ambiguous homologies into sharp focus with the discovery of transitional fossils. A case in point is the connection between the blowholes of whales and dolphins and the nostrils of humans. Fossils show how the nostrils of ancestral whales move from the tip of the snout to the top of the head. In the 1950s, the study of homology entered a new phase. Scientists began to discover similarities in the structure of proteins. Different species have different forms of hemoglobin, for example. Each form is adapted to a particular way of life, but all descended from one ancestral molecule. When scientists started sequencing DNA, they were able to find homologies between genes as well. From generation to generation, genes sometimes get accidentally copied. Each copy goes on to pick up unique mutations, but their sequence remains similar enough to reveal their shared ancestry. A trait like an arm is encoded in many genes which cooperate with one another to build it. Some genes produce proteins that physically join together to do a job. In other cases, a protein encoded by one gene is required to switch on other genes. It turns out that clusters of these genes, sometimes called modules, tend to keep working together over the course of millions of years. But they get rewired along the way. They respond to new signals and act to help build new traits. Absolutely amazing, don't you think? Now, there are some people that say this is completely random. It's just evolution. It's just mutation and selection. And I'm, I'm sure that's operative. Obviously, it is. But what about the building blocks? I mean, these genes, DNA, this is immense amounts of information. Who put that pattern together? Is it a pattern? These are the questions we should be asking ourselves instead of should gays marry or should there be prayers in the school or should politicians wear lapel pins and their birth certificates around their neck? Let's get serious. Michael Steele of the Republican National Committee has done it again. He's taken a few days off from those virtual lesbian strip clubs uh -huh. and has put together a fundraising letter that looks like a census form. The Republican Party is seeking input and money from GOP voters seemingly under the guise of the U.S. Census Bureau. Ooh, strength is, quote, strengthening our party for the 2010 elections is going to make a massive grassroots effort all across America. That is why I have authorized a census to be conducted of every congressional district in the country, GOP Chairman Michael Steele says in a letter mailed nationwide. It gets worse, okay, because this really looks like a census form. The letter was sent in plain white envelopes marked Do Not Destroy official document labeled 2010 Congressional District Census. The letter uses a capital C, the same as the Census Bureau. It also includes a census tracking code and... Get this, all right? The letter makes a plea for money and accompanies a form asking voters to identify their political leanings and issues important to them. There are no disclaimers that participation in the GOP effort is voluntary. Participation in the government census is required by law. Failure to participate, $5,000 fine, rarely enforced. Okay, so Sarah Sendek, a Republican National Committee spokesman, said the letter was not an attempt to mislead voters. She says the document 
clearly indicates it's an RNC mailer. Well, how about that, David? Yeah, well, I, I've tried to read my copy of this now. Oh, you have a, you have a copy? Uh, our, my census tracking code is number S. That's a, a 10HR098. And uh, it says here, this is an official document. No, really, Pete, it says, Your participation is greatly needed and appreciated. Strengthening our party, capital P, for the 2010 elections will take a massive grassroots effort. Yep. As a key facet of our overall campaign strategy, the Republican Party is conducting a census, capital C, of congressional districts all across America. The opinions registered in this document will be used to help ensure that our Republican leaders and candidates are specifically addressing those issues most important to voters in your area. Well, if I wasn't a really sensitive and on-top-of-it political type, I'd be fooled by that, i.e. if I was just an average person. I think if you're an average person and you get this in the mail, you've heard a lot of stuff on television. Here on Section 5, which is the back page. Section 5. <laughs> yeah. Section 8 comes next, and there's a four-page document. Section 5, Census Certification and Reply. One, can the Republican Party count on your support to help strengthen our party for the 2010 elections? There's a box that says yes. There's no box that says no. No, there is no box that says no. But I thought the GOP said only no. Maybe this is their turning. No. They're becoming the party of yes. But they do hereby, one has to hereby certify that the answers to the enclosed census are my own and sign it. So just to let you know, here's the major issues here on, would you like national defense, major issues in national defense, or, or, do you, or here's one for what you. About, what about uh, same-sex marriage laws will make well, people that, marry horses? This do, you is, this is a bit, do you believe, this is number 16 in section 3, do you believe the Republican Party should continue to embrace social issues? Yes, no, undecided. If yes... <laughs> oh, please register your opinion on the following social issues. I want to pretend to be this person. Okay, well, number one. One is support, two is oppose, and three is no opinion. So okay. now, uh, here, here are the, there are six things plus other, of course. Go. Always the other. Always the other, the <laughs> okay. not me. Here we go. School prayer. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I, school prayer. School I, prayer. Yeah, well, I think I oppose it. And then again, I don't. Okay. Uh, ban burning of the flag. No, you can burn the flag, but not in my backyard. Okay. Uh, ban human cloning. That's a tough one. I'm going to have to talk to my, my double about that. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, faith-based initiatives. Support, oppose, no opinion. Faith-based initiatives. Well, Bush pushed forward all those faith-based initiatives, and a lot of them turned out to be organizations that wouldn't let homosexuals in. So I'm going to have to say no. No on that one. All yeah. right. Uh, ban all abortions. All abortions? All, all, all. Including previous abortions. And everyone that's ever happened. And, and because the future, remember the crispy, uh, um, crispy bread, because right. the future can come uh, to the... So all future abortions also have to be outlawed. And uh, prohibit same-sex marriage. Those are the six issues on social issues. Pro Aren't those great social pro issues? Prohibit, ban, ban, ban. There's yeah. three bans and one prohibit. And there's no support to speak of. But, Su support but, immunization of children. Uh, support head start. Support this, support that. No, it's just don't you dare get married to that man because you're a man, yeah. I think. Well, I, I just want to leave you with this one one worry, yeah. okay, that the Republicans would like to leave you with. <laughs> They'd like to take your money and leave you with this. Do you worry that Russia is moving away from its relationship with the U.S. and 
trying to reestablish itself as a military and economic superpower. We've already reported on Arizona Governor Jan Brewer signing that bill last week that targets a school district's ethnic study program. Yeah. It seems she penned that very controversial bill just hours after a report by the United Nations human rights experts condemned the measure. What does she care? Arizona, United Nations. Hey. State schools chief, this is Arizona state schools chief Tom Horn, who has pushed the measure for years, said a Tucson school district program promotes ethnic chauvinism and racial resentment towards whites while segregating students by race. This is highly suspicious. I quote him, It's just like the Old South, and it's long past time that we prohibit it, Horn said. There's some hypocrisy here. There, I just smell it. It's that, it's, it's that scent of Arizona hypocrisy that's been parched in the sun. The measure prohibits classes that advocate ethnic solidarity. Hmm that are designed primarily for students of a particular race or that promote resentment towards a certain ethnic group. It also prohibits classes that promote the overthrow of the U.S. government. Now, wait a minute. These are all in the same basket, basically. So if you want to promote ethnic solidarity, I mean, I suppose when I went to um, special Hebrew school in Cleveland in which we learned to memorize long lists of famous Jews, okay, that's out. Uh, also designed primarily for students of a particular race, like teaching um, English as a second language or English courses for students who speak uh, almost primarily Spanish. That's out. Anything that promotes resentment towards a certain ethnic group. Now, I can understand that. But on the other hand, if you're just teaching the history of the United States, there is a lot of resentment towards certain ethnic groups. Well, that's out. And classes that promote the overthrow of the U.S. government. Last time I checked... Our founding fathers overthrew a government. It wasn't a U.S. government, but uh, it was a government nonetheless, and it was a government in place. Okay, well, there we go. So, the Tucson Unified School District Program offers specialized courses in African-American, Mexican-American, and Native American studies that focus on history and literature and include information about the influence of a particular ethnic group. Well, boy, that, that's dangerous stuff. I can see why Mr. Horn wanted to broom that immediate For example, in the Mexican-American Studies Program, an American history course explores the role of Hispanics in the Vietnam War. Well, the role, I think, is called cannon fodder. And there's a literature course that emphasizes Latino authors. Oh, my. Really? We're going to, reading Gabriel Marquez or, 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 or any of the greats, or maybe Cervantes. He's reading Cervantes. He wants to overthrow the government. He's promoting ethnic solidarity. This is insane. But, of course, the country's going insane. Horn said he believes the Mexican-American Studies Program teaches Latino students that they are oppressed by white people. Now, go get my maid. She'll come here right now and tell everybody that I don't oppress her. Maybe. Public schools should not be encouraging students to resent a particular race, he said. This is so convoluted. I mean, this does have my shorts in a knot. A Republican running for attorney general, Horn has been trying to restrict the program ever since he learned that Hispanic um, civil rights activist Dolores Huerta in 2006 told students that Republicans hate Latinos. Well, maybe it's not that Republicans hate Latinos, although there's a good case to be made for that. Maybe it's just that Latinos don't like Republicans. 
Governments, your friends, you see That's what I have to say, or they will bury me Don't you try to criticize And don't you ever try to talk about their lies I don't know what you've been told But last time I checked, we had the right to say the things we mean And disagree and not have to face the guillotine But if it's your head in the basket Then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution Patriot Act is the riot act with a PAT. What the really means is that they're watching you and that they're really watching me. And anyone who disagrees is sure to lose their liberties. A patriot has got to keep his mouth shut. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution. Tyranny the same as you or me And it's a crime To speak your mind And it's a crime whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't say a word Cause if you're her That plate is gonna Guilty or not, because we stick them in a cell and they are soon forgotten And they're out of sight and out of mind and out of luck But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution Before you choose a side to fight, forget about who's wrong or right If you like your neck, you best as heck start rooting for the winner This brave new world is knocking at your door, and you better let it in The Constitution's evolution never made a contribution to the revolutionary man It's a crime to speak your mind And it's a crime, whoa Once upon a time, and I guess we're talking about the good old days here, the CIA had to know a militant's name before putting him up for a robotic targeted killing. Now if the guy acts like a gorilla, it's enough to call in a drone strike. This is indeed part of the horror 
that we are bringing to the world. We used to have to know the poor bozo's name before we drilled him from, you know, from above. Now, if he's acting like a gorilla, come on. It's another sign of that once limited, once covert program to off senior terrorist leaders has morphed into a full scale, if undeclared, war in Pakistan. So we're at war with Pakistan. Now, there's good news. And in a war, you don't need to know the name of someone on the other side before you take a shot. Yesterday, U.S. drone aircraft, for example, killed at least 24 suspected militants in two attacks in Pakistan's north, Waziristan. (laughs) Waziristan, I just can't stand it. It was the fourth drone missile strike on militants in northwest Pakistan, bordering Afghanistan, since a failed bid to set off a car bomb in New York's Times Square on May 1st. So they're definitely, they're, they're saying now, oh, we're sure, as the Taliban sent them over here to set off the bomb, so we're just going to go kill everybody that looks like a militant. The United States is convinced, of course, that uh, Taliban militants allied with al-Qaeda and operating out of northwestern border regions like Waziristan was behind the attempted New York bombing. So... In the first of of yesterday's two drone attacks, this was on Monday, more than 12 missiles were fired in Dakahel village, about 20 miles west of Maranshah, North Waziristan. Oh, this is North Waziristan. I wonder if that's like the nice side, if that's on the right side of the tracks or the right side of the drone. Quote, three missiles hit a vehicle and three militants sitting in it were killed, said an intelligence agency official in the region who declined to be identified. Because if they got his name, they might shoot him too. The drones then fired a barrage of missiles at a nearby militant compound, killing at least 11 more, according to a second security official. Militant compound. Okay, but things are bad in Pakistan. You look up, you know, you give the sky the finger, you're a militant, you're dead. But across the border in Afghanistan, where we're kind of officially at war, the rules for launching an airstrike have become tighter than a bald fist. Dropping a bomb from above is now a tactic of last resort. Even when U.S. troops are under fire, commanders are reluctant to authorize airstrikes even under those conditions. That's because they've been getting a lot of bad press for all the innocent women and children that we've been killing. In Pakistan, however, the opposite has happened. Starting in the latter days of the Bush administration and accelerating under the Obama presidency, drone pilots have become more and more free to launch their weapons. Drone pilots. I'm told that they are sitting in refrigerated rooms in Las Vegas doing the killing. I mean, totally frightening, you know. After a little gambling, a little liquor, a little prostitutes, let's go in and kill people who act like gorillas. Uh, Orwell could not have dreamed this up. Quote, we've had an expanded target set for some time now. I I love military talk. Expanded target set. More people looking or acting or smelling like gorillas are getting fried from these drones. Uh, So we have an expanded target set now. Given the danger these groups pose and their relative inaccessibilities, these kind of strikes, precise and effective, have become almost like the cannon fire of this war. They're no longer extraordinary or even unusual, admitted one American official. Yeah, the thing about cannon fire also is it takes out anybody it hits. You know, in the Civil War, you didn't know the other guy's name either, but at least you could see each other as you plowed each other under. This is war at a distance. It's like John McCain at 50,000 feet carpet bombing people he never met. Of course, he actually did get to meet a couple of them uh, unexpectedly. 
you know, Bebop being so indigenous, you know, being so real and being so local, even when he has gone beyond good and evil. I mean, above Fresno is beyond good and evil. Sure, man. Reminds <laughs> me. that right, man. I mean, hey, I'm still here. Uh-oh. You, are, you know, your Bebop, music is gone yeah, and you're still here? I'm still here. My Unbelievable. music is gone. I, we didn't know you could exist without that underscore. I, I thought I could not exist without that music. Bebop, you know, we just recently, David and Phil and I were in Houston just two days ago. Oh, I love Houston, oh, man. And we were... We were there to see the Ring trilogy, but not not the not the Tolkien Ring trilogy, but the Wagner Ring trilogy done by the Houston uh, Opera. Yeah, they, it and, was but, a new version of it. But a though, new version Pete, because I'm, people are that? so well because they're so interested in what's happening. It's now called the Fall of Enron. Oh man, yeah, that's in all the news now. Yeah, and I understand there's even a touring show up your way. You may have seen it yourself. I want to read you from the program, try to explain to you what was going on. Now, you guys have got to tell me if I got this right. Okay. Okay. There's a bunch of these women come on in the beginning, right, in this kind of cave, and they are they represent, there's 881 of them, uh-huh. and they represent the offshore subsidiaries oh, yeah. of, of Enron, right? Very romantic. Very romantic. They're, they're hiding the gold, right? Yeah, and, right. Uh, from the investors who don't know they've lost it yet. I love this part. And then Jeffrey Schilling, the CEO, plays Loki. And he comes in and he steals it from them with an accounting <laughs> ruse, right? Yeah. And then, okay, then the devil, played by Fastow. Oh, very good casting. Very good casting. He comes up against George W., who plays Wotan, right? Yeah. All right, now, now Ken Lay is Siegfried, and he finds Brunhilde, who represents the regulated energy industry, and circulated in a ring of cold regulations. She can't move, right? Yeah, right. So he kisses her with the dark kiss of deregulation. Oh, I love that. And she is freed. She is taken off the books. See, there she goes. And then the... And now, now the Valkyries, the Valkyries come in on their winged horses, and they ride quickly out of the theater and try and cash their Enron philanthropic checks before they go bad. But they don't. They lose, right? Yeah, I got it. Okay, then, here's here's what happens now. That's that's Henry Waxman. Henry Waxman now comes in. The fifth, the fifth. Well, he swallowed his mustache. He swallows his mustache. <laughs> he, he, is he plays the ultimate good and evil, and yeah. he kills Ken Lay as Siegfried, and he reduces Brunhilde <laughs> to, to regulation. She yeah. can no longer be off the books, and then Ragnarok, which I'm beginning is, to lose you now, man. Yeah, yeah, Ragnarok, which is the huge town of, of, of Houston, goes up in flames, and the Bush administration falls. Oh, yeah, I love that part. It was a great opportunity. Great, man. That's oh. good. Much better than our little theater production up here. Oh, yeah, really? No, it was nothing. Besides, the actors, their teeth were chattering so hard they couldn't sing at all. Well, we were really impressed, and at the end of it, the whole theater went dark because they couldn't pay their Enron electricity bill. That's right. right. They probably yeah. impounded your cars, right? They, they did. They just pounded them, in fact. And yeah. they, they squeezed them in these little balls and, and sold, they sold them, them to China. They sold them to along, China. Along with, apparently, a 50,000 tons of a crumpled Twin Towers. Except you guys this, lead an exciting life out well, there on the street, man. Well, yeah. the, when we went out to the parking lot to get our car, there was this one guy, man, with you know, named Baxter. And he did not look good at all, man. He had the windows up and he had a 38. He was like, and he was crying. He was saying something about offshore money. And then that was oh, the last I heard. It was really. The poor guy. Poor guy. He showed up on CNN later. Well, you see, everybody gets famous, man. All well, you... everybody gets one of those crawls. Right. Every one. One crawl below. One crawl. That's all you get now. 
five, four, three, two, beep. Erpy iPad App presents Exorcism in Your Daily Life, registered trademark, Derivatives. Let's join Billy and his dad over in their typical Billville home breakfast nook, where Billy is explaining... Uh, you see, Dad, my philosophy teacher wants me to, to produce this music video about derivatives and, and Freud, and, and I need to go practice ultimate ring ball with Bruce. Well, Bobby, I'm not allowed to talk about Freud anymore. Really? Or, or ring ball. Gosh. But, but derivatives are something else. They sure are, Dad. Uh, what are they? It's easy, buddy. You see, derivatives are contracts whose value is determined by, well, by something else. That's very philosophical, Dad. I'm trying. You sure are, Dad. So, what's a contract? Well, Teddy, for that, we'll have to doodle-dee-dee-doodle-doodle-doodle-do on down to see Big Bill Brown there at what's left of the First National Bingo Bank. Golly! Doodle-dee-doodle-dee-doodle-dee-doodle-dee-doo. Well, hi, Mr. Brown. I'm here again. You sure are, buddy. Watch it this time. Another question about the size of my fat bonus? I don't want to have to think about that ever again, sir. Mm-hmm. But but anyway, what's a derivatives contract, Mr. Brown? Oh, well, that's easy, son. It's a collateralized debt obligation, and that's a valuable product we bankers sell to hedge against risks. Do I have one, Mr. Brown? You won't even know what one is until you get an M. MBA, Bobby. You know, sometimes these entirely digital things we buy and sell here are called interest rate swaps, and and they help to protect us against abrupt changes in interest rates. You mean like the 29% my mom pays on her Kmart card? There's nothing your mom can do about that, Bobby. I I expect she'll have to lose her car. What about our food, Mr. Brown? Well, well, for that, Teddy, you better go see Farmer Jones down at the Chemical Corn Exchange Department. Well, Bobby, you see, I grow onions, and onions are the only cash vegetable crop that you can grow, but you can't bet on. I, I, I can't? No, sir, and there's a fine U.S. federal law to protect you from doing that. Golly. What if <laughs> Goldman Sachs a crap could sell those insane Wall Street gamblers and money-mad banking moguls on a deal to bet on the size of my bulging onion crop? Oh, is that like a metaphor, Farmer Jones? Stop imagining things, Bobby, and listen. All right. There are a lot of people who only care about the stuff they can bet on. Oh, and that's very futuristic. Yep, it sure is. Let's say you bet the bank I'll grow 390 tons of onions. Gosh, okay. What'll that cost me, sir? 390 pink Monopoly dollars and eventually the whole international economy. Wow. Uh, Even the euro? That's sick. It sure is. Now, if you bet that I'm going to grow more tons than that... You go long. I'd really like to, Farmer Jones, but I'm only 13. I mean, place your bet, boy. Oh. Or you can go short and sell my onion contract to some other bozo. Oh, how can I sell it if I didn't buy it? Confusing, ain't it, Bubba? Yeah. And, and you know, that's the way they like it. Mm. But for the real poop, you need to Skype our most prominent futurologist, old Doc Infermo, the oh. famous exorcist yeah. down at the Homeland Infirmary Agency. Well, so, Doc, I don't know what a derivative is, and I'm confused about contracts and obligatory collateralized debts, and, well, what do you predict will happen, Dr. Infermo? We're doomed. Golly, again? 
Derivatives, another exorcism in your daily life iPad app from Herpie. Here's a juicy piece by Eric Simpson in the HuffPost. Sarah Palin recently claimed that American law should be based on the Ten Commandments. Glenn Beck, addressing the graduating students of the late Jerry Falwell's Liberty University, said that God's finger wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. God's finger wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. That is so patently absurd, I can't even deal with it. I suppose one might conjecture that the documents of the Founding Fathers were influenced indirectly by God via Enlightenment and deist thought, uh, parsed with the relics of Reformation dogma, but to suggest, even as a metaphor, that they were written by the finger of God, thereby granting America the status of a chosen theocracy, is an innovative, to say the least, and absurd. For some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, but Often with tears in their eyes, they they demand, absolutely demand, that uh, the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Blessed are the merciful in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. I think not. The advent and ascension of the fundamentalist evangelical right in America, as represented by Sarah Palin and Glenn Beck, presents an odd synchronism of religious sentimentality and political ideology that is no less a synthesis than the practice of voodoo, which is a cultural concoction of polytheistic, animistic, African tribal belief, and the religious ethos of exoteric Roman Catholic ritual. Yes, Sarah Palin and Glenn Beck are voodoo priests. The evangelical right doesn't accurately represent uh, either authentic Christianity or traditional conservative thought. The end result is an insidious conflation that combines apocalyptic fears with political zeal, posturing as religious fervor, a fundamentalist voodoo that is as superstitious and credulous as the voodoo practice in Haiti or in some sections of New Orleans. The evil in the world that is out to get us per the ethos of fundamentalist voodoo, always uses the tyranny of force, comes in the guise of government, bloodthirsty for the gray equality of an egalitarianism that lowers everyone to the level of dust and ashes. It wants to kill our babies and grandmothers, destroy our marriages, restrict our rights to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They want to annihilate us, per George W., because they are jealous of our freedoms, or they want the power all for themselves, gradually leading the world, it stands to reason, to embrace a one-world government controlled by the Antichrist. People like Sarah Palin and Glenn Beck make a huge personal profit, both politically and monetarily, by playing on the fear of the credulous and claiming this equals that when it plainly does not. Add to this the promise of manifest destiny, the clearly heretical doctrine that God wrote the founding documents of our country, the notion that we are a unique nation chosen by God to be a Christian nation whose laws are based on the Bible and the voodoo works its strange magic. The most malevolent evil, though, per Palin and Beck and their cohorts, is the government. There is apparently nothing more demonic than the Nazi-like fascist and antichrist political desire to steal our money via taxation. The irony here is thick. 
Love of money, according to the scriptures, is the root of all evil. Failing to love God and one's neighbor, and more according to Christ, failure to love one's enemy is immoral. Investing your life in the abundance of your possessions is foolishness and idolatry. Well, that may be a little bit over the top, but there is an interesting equation there. It's far easier to politicize spiritual life and to blame and scapegoat someone out there, the homosexual, the socialist, the leftist, the fundamentalist, the African-American, the atheist, the Jew, the illegal alien, the other, the not-me, than it is to blame oneself and to actually strive to be virtuous. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes in the Gulag Archipelago, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You know, Harper's Index often has just the piece of information that we need at a moment like this. Hit me. Okay. Estimated cost to locate, process, and deport all illegal immigrants in the United States. Are you ready? Yeah. $285 $285 billion. $285 billion. And, and now, of course, there, there's going to be more. I mean, it's going to be more. Even though they're going to be building this wall, they're going to have to import all of those illegal aliens to build that wall. Oh, I forgot about that part. So take that up to $300 billion. Yeah, $300 billion. Okay, round number up. Sure. That, there you go. We just keep, you know, we just keep spending it. It's th- th- well, that's nothing. Don't we throw that away in Afghanistan like every week? Afghanistan, I understand, is becoming now officially more expensive than Iraq. It took a while. But, of course, things have, you know, are, are winding down in Iraq. Winding down. Just that <laughs> now people that aren't dressed as American soldiers can kill each other. And we're all over in Afghanistan. Oh, I tell you, I, 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 am, I am really really upset with Barack Obama. Okay. You oh, know I'm a big fan. I know you're a big fan. A this big is, fan this of, is big news. This, this is, big is news. but I've got yeah. to ream him a new perspective. All right. Okay. All right. Look, I know Barack inherited the war in Afghanistan. He didn't start it. He didn't lie and get us into Iraq or anything like that. Yes, he got there. All right, fine. And it and he can't wind it down overnight. I understand that, right? Even if that's his intent. But he is sponsoring state terrorism, using these drones, right, to kill people who look like militants, who act like guerrillas, to, to drone them, to rocket them from drones, you know, be, f- using, using guys sitting in refrigerated trailers in Arizona and Las Vegas. That is state terrorism. He knows about it, and he's got to stop it. He's, he's a man of exquisite sensibilities. Why he is letting this go, I don't know. Perhaps, like Bill Clinton, he's a man who has had no military experience and therefore is cowed by his military advisors, particularly the ones that are wearing all the fruit salad when they walk in to tell him what's happening. Right. You know, he also doesn't have a lot of background in the intelligence community. So I think it's difficult for him to figure out who's telling who the truth. I mean, it's not like George Bush Sr., who was head of the CIA, knew it was all lies and knew how to deal with it. But here he is, man. I tell you, Barack Obama, you've got to think about this again. You know, this is putting you in the W category, man. It's it's state terror. We are the terrorists in this case. It's easy to turn that around. And the reason that we are doing this is the same reason that me lie happened and the same reason that the Vietnamese were <clears throat> made into uh, short yellow people in black uniform, in black uh, 
clothing or right? pajamas, black pajamas. <clears throat> yeah, right. let's really get it right. As, now. as if they're pajamas. as if they're going to like uh, win the war and then go to sleep. Yeah, or just to have wake up to win war well, and then wake go up, back win to sleep. war, go back to sleep. Yeah. yeah okay. So, <laughs> so th- this is a way of not dealing, uh, even on a semi-personal basis, with the people that you are killing, and it is indeed a, a, a sp- very specific act of going out with a, a very large gun and whacking people. And if that isn't, I agree with you completely, that is state terrorism. We should not be whacking people. Why are we doing this? Because we cannot get to them any other way. We don't have this any, way. We don't have any what they call hume-int, which is human intelligence, i.e. we can't send somebody in from, you know, that studied Arabic or Pashtun at Colgate University and he can pretend to be Taliban. Can't do it, you know. No, and, we, then, we, and then put a, a, a suitcase with explosives <laughs> under the desk, which then Hitler moves over by his, you know. Can't do that. And we can't, and we cannot actually br- hire anybody to do it inside Waziristan because everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And when they find out you took money from the Americans, they kill you. The amazing thing about the Afghanis is they can tell each other apart. They can. I can't. They can. Maybe it's different rugs. Maybe it's maybe it's a different brand of opium on their breath. I don't know what it is, but speaking they can. Speaking of opium, you know, about a third. I'm always speaking of opium, yes. <laughs> but not on it. About a third of the opium crop is, uh, is uh, vanished due to some dreadful illness in Afghanistan. They lost about a third of the crop, so they expect the prices are going to go up. Oh, man, you mean like like some sort of like, you know, they need Monsanto's, right, opium seeds that are impervious to all of those diseases. Just let's work it out. The, the peace jerga is coming up, and I'm sure all these guys sitting around with their, you know, in their tribal dress, talking their tribal languages, will come up with a tribal solution for this, which is if we just get money from America to keep growing more opium instead of having the Marines walk through our fields like Klutzes. Why, then we're good. Monsanto, very good, very good. And then we can find a use for Halliburton. Take the wrong way When you're gonna learn When your tears are falling sideways You can't win At the game of love So you think You're gonna talk about your sorrow You decide You better wait till tomorrow Cause ain't Ain't nothing you can borrow Gonna help you win At the game of love Everything the whole wide world it always turns out the same. It might look like a brand new day, but it's the same old game. Down on your knees, try to romance her, but you might as well be a necromancer. Everybody knows you ain't. Got the answer How to win At the game of love
same old game Sometimes you gotta start a little commotion If you want that sweet emotion First of all, don't you think this spill now is, is thought to is going to be in excess of what happened with El Exxon Valdez? Let's see if that happens. Point. Let's see if that happens. Well, okay. Let, I mean, but, there's, but a, there's a good question today if you're standing down there on the Gulf, and that is, where's the oil? Where's because the oil? It's not on, except for little chunks of it. You're not even seeing it on the shores but, yet. But there are some new reports that there are greater amounts of it on the ocean oh, floor. Oh, yes, there's, that's true. But you know where the greatest source of oil that seeps into the ocean is? It's from natural seepage from, under, uh, from subterranean deposits. That's where most of it comes from, not from drilling accidents. So what's badly needed here is some perspective on our energy policy and also on the hard realities of what really goes on when it comes to oil spillage. But I think it's going to damage the environment in the Gulf and it's going to damage tourism, going to damage fishing. I don't think there's any question this is in excess of anything that we previously we'll asked the ocean is. to absorb. We'll see if it is. But, right. But I think absorbs but a lot, Juan. An I'm awful sorry. lot. The ocean absorbs a lot. Yeah, well, there you go. Brett Hume has now joined... Uh, many illustrious people, and what I has become a slick idiot in oil. All right, slip me a few slickers. Yeah, as I was talking with uh, Dave Maloney when we first heard this, and he said he must have been to dinner with someone from the industry, and they fed him this line about, <laughs> "Did you know, Brent, that most of the oil that seeps into the Gulf comes from just normal subterranean seepage? You know, thirty thousand, forty thousand gallons an hour of that stuff just seeping out. We just, we just didn't notice it. No, no, it was like a, you know, it was sort of like a volcano, but." You know, upside we, down, upside down, or under the water. We didn't where think it doesn't quite, belong. Yeah, it doesn't happen. There, okay, so. we got Brett Hume, right? Yeah. Okay, now we got yeah. Haley Barber, the Republican governor of Mississippi, and mm -hmm. he doesn't think that this is a big problem at he all. Doesn't. Uh, he likened much of the spill to the gasoline sheen commonly found around ski boats. I quote him: "We don't wash our face in it, but it doesn't stop us from jumping off the boat to ski." Barber said. Uh huh. Oh, he also suggested my lake. <laughs> he also suggested <laughs> right it was possible that what happens here will be manageable and of moderate, even minimal impact. Mm -hmm. uh, he sort of said, like your garage floor on a, like a leaky yeah, yeah. carburetor. Or something he said, like hey, come on down here and play golf. Enjoy the beach. Catch a fish and pay a little sales tax while you're here. Uh, no, okay. He's not alone. We got Brett Hume. We got Hailey okay, Barber. And also okay. we've got a British Petroleum. CEO oh, yes, Tony that, Hayward, yeah, yeah, yeah. who has declared that the giant oil spill in the Gulf, still gushing thousands of gallons of oil a day into the sea, and the hundreds of thousands of gallons of dispersant that the BP has pumped into the water mm. to combat the slick, are tiny compared to the very big ocean. The Gulf of Mexico is a very big ocean. The amount of volume of oil and dispersant we are putting in it is, is tiny in relationship to its total water volume. And we'll fix it, he said. I guarantee the only question is we, we don't know when. 
Hayward also acknowledged that BP had made some initial mistakes in its response to the, the spill. It was a bit bumpy to get it going. We made a few little mistakes early on and said it's possible that his job might one day be in jeopardy as a result of the spill. Asked if he felt his job was already under threat, he replied, I don't at the moment. That, of course, may change. I will be judged by the nature of the response. Slick idiots in oil. Yeah, there they are. Well, <clears throat> yes, I heard that fellow. It's the British fellow. Uh, I mean, it is the voice of, of BP and the voice of, you know, one of the most gigantic corporations. I mean, they're, what they're spilling in the ocean is, you know, is this like their profit margin for the year? No. Is this their one profit margin for the hour mar- margin? <laughs> you know, it's nothing. It's just a, it's just the Gulf's got some oil into it. It's not going to spill on Haley Barber's front lawn. That's what he's telling me, huh? Boy, I tell you, when it comes down to Provincetown, and those little those little oil slickers come around Provincetown and start floating around the Cape, I'll tell you, things are going to look a lot different because we out here on the Cape are proud to be liberals and Massachusettsans and, and Cape addicts, and we don't want any southern oil on our beaches. And you just remember that, Governor, okay? Good digital day to you, dear friends. I'm Reverend Bill Barnes, Stormer of the First Vigilant Church of Science Fiction. My text today is from the second book of Paul, chapter 2. And Rand went forth unto the tea partiers, his eyes to the ophthalmoscope wherethrough he could see into the eye of his beholders. And he saith unto them, Is it always someone's fault? Maybe sometimes accidents happen. And Dear friends, say thank you for that, because don't we know that accidents do happen every day in our kitchens, in our schoolrooms, and even in our cars? And yes, even in our darkest coal mines and our deepest oil holes, accidents can happen. And if they do, well, can't we blame the government? And dear friends, if it's not someone's fault, aren't we glad? Because if it were, then we'd have to take an interest in it, and dear friends, Interest rates are way, way down. Now, you can get your own copy of the first and second books of Paul from the fine folks at WFCFA. That's White Folks for a Compassion-Free America right down there in Brasero, Arizona. And say, if you'd like one of those front porch signs you've been hearing about and seeing on the news, it's it's just got those simple words, we ain't calling 911. And after you hang it up there on your porch there, well, you can put your own toy water gun or rocket launcher right there to, you know, give people the picture. So you just send a postcard to sign Divine Holy Name Blessed Covenant Church of the Second Amendment dot com right there at Box 1776, Billville, USA. And this is the Reverend Bill Barnstormer saying, thank you, dear friends. Well, that was Best of the Best and All the Rest. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. My co-host, David Osmond. John Cumming does our ones and zeros. Tom Gidwillow puts it all on the site. Phil Fountain, he makes it look beautiful. Dave Maloney does the sound. Bill McIntyre produces the whole schmageggy. 
And Scott Wilde is our social media guru. See you on the week coming up.